Sorry, Kim. Hey, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> yay. Someone just said yay. I never heard that. Good morning. Yay. That's good. We should do that more often. People say good morning to you in your office this week, whatever. Good morning. Yay. Just see what they do. Um, really glad that you're here. If you're new with us, welcome. Um, you know, as, as uh, we talk, there's so much, like Kim was saying, so much stuff going on in our church and our church family. And if you're looking for a place where uh, people um, do not have all the answers, you are in the right place. If you are looking for a place where um, people get to wonder about things and where we don't do everything perfectly, you're in the right place. Um, we say often this is a place where people are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we're learning what it looks like to love other people like Jesus does, but none of us does that perfectly all the time. And so um, if that sounds like something you'd like to be connected to, if that sounds like something that you're kind of in the direction of your life, man, this is where we are. And we'd love to, you know, have a conversation with you, as Kim said, at the Welcome Center, anywhere else. But I'm so, so glad that you're here. You know, we got high school students who are sitting over there. A lot of them going to camp tomorrow. They're pretty excited about that. Yep. See, someone just said, so, okay, the answer is, the answer is yay. When I say good morning to just high school students only, the answer is yay. Hey, good morning, high school students. See the enthusiasm. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Uh, contagious. But there's all kinds of stuff happening. We've got a series right now called Epic. It has been very, very fun to talk to some of you guys. We've got a couple emails from some of you who are responding to the series. Um, very cool. And basically, here's the series. It's this look at the Bible kind of through the lens of some of the most heroic and villainous characters of the Bible. And as we get to look at it, as we look at the Bible, you actually find that there are, um, the, the, most of the story that you find is this is actually, it's not just people's story of faith. It's actually God's story through his people and through people of faith, or in some cases, not, they're not faith. And what you find is that more often than not, the people that we identify as heroes in the Bible, the people you might have heard of, the people that are sort of, you know, Hollywood eyes, you know, there's a new version of, I think, the Exodus coming out, you know, there's a new Charlton Heston, which is Christian Bale, you know, I don't know if that's going to work. But anyway, that's coming out, and you have this kind of idea, we know some of those people, but we wonder, you know, how do those people become so heroic because they're kind of so distant from us, and what you find is looking at the Bible, that these are people who are a lot like us. That it isn't, it isn't that they are just straight up heroic people. It's that they're actually really weak people who are used in heroic ways. And once we get our arms around that idea, then all of a sudden the whole Bible and all the story, and all these people being used and all this kind of stuff, we start going, maybe that actually could be my story too. You know, there's a part of the Bible, it's in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which kind of, you know, captures some of these great stories of of faith and great heroes of the Bible. And it says it in this way. I love the way it's on the top of your outline. You can look at this. It says it this way. Hebrews 11 says this. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about those who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. And we can identify with weakness. We understand weakness. We don't really understand superheroes, but we do understand weakness. And so... It's in that vein that we kind of begin um, this, this message today. And so while we do that, why don't we pray together and we'll get right into it. Father, as um, we understand the idea of heroism, most often we like to think of ourselves as heroic, but we know that there's great weakness in our lives. Jesus, we know that we have weaknesses that have plagued us since we were very young. We have weaknesses that we're presently enduring and we wonder if there's any possibility that you might do something in our lives because... We know how much our weakness has kind of owned us. And yet you, Jesus, you turn weakness into strength. Father, we carry so much on our shoulders. We need relief. We need rest. We hear so many messages from the world that tell us about how we ought to be concerned with things that matter so much to the world, but matter so little to our soul and matter so little to you. 
And so, Father, would you bring those things to mind right now to us? The things that we're being told, the messages that keep, keep being played over and over again that are preying on our weaknesses and basically encouraging us to buy things or take things or manipulate things. God, would we just, would you allow us right now to release those things? Would you speak to us in words that are beyond words, in the stillness, in the silence? So, Father, we give you a few moments just to pause to hear from you. Might today be a day, Jesus, in which you release us from those concerns that plague us, that dominate our, our stories that have kept us captive. That we be freed up to a new life that is radical and crazy and different, but that is full of life. And so, Jesus, it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned you, you know, already just kind of mentioned you have a, an outline in your bulletin. If you want to pull that out, if you didn't do that already, um, there's a way to kind of follow along there. If you want to follow along on the screen, if you want to follow along on your own little iPhone or iPad or whatever else you want to do, or just want to take notes or you want to doodle or whatever it is you want to do, you can do that right now. Um, we're going to be mostly in, in Matthew uh, chapter 16. You can turn there if you want in your Bible, if you want to follow along that way, great. Um, while we're doing that, let me just ask you a quick survey, show of hands. So um, when you were growing up, either, you know, when you're really little or maybe even into the present, well, just, yeah, you're very little, just to make it safe for everybody. Very little. Um, <coughs> sorry, you had, a, you had some kind of blanket, pillow, a stuffed animal that you could not sleep with unless you had it in your arms every night. Show of hands. Some of you are like, I'm, I'm embarrassed about that. I'm ashamed about it in my family. I'm not sure I'm supposed to raise my hand. It's okay. How many of you guys, uh, how many of you guys, um, Wait, real quick. No, we'll get to that. Some, I won't embarrass people like that yet. How many, of you, uh, how many of you guys, it was a stuffed animal? How many of you guys, it was like a blanket? Much, many, far more blankets in this room than this room, you guys. I'm not sure what that, what that says about anything, except there's far more blankets. Um, how many of you guys had just like a special pillow? Anybody? Oh, the pillow, not making a strong appearance. Um, how many of you guys still have those things today? You still utilize them? How many of you guys don't utilize them, but you still have them? They're somewhere, like they're, they've been bronzed or something like that in your, in your garage. And yes, this is the stuffed animal I slept with, yeah, every, until I was 10 years old. And then my mom took it away from me and bronzed it so it would be uncomfortable to sleep with, or whatever it is, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my, my daughter has a blanket. It's basically just, it's basically a net now, if you can imagine, because it's just, nothing's holding it together except the stitching. And it's kind of gross, because you can't really wash it, because if you wash it, it'll just be a tangle. And so we kind of are like... We're not sure what to do with this. We dry clean it. I mean, what do you do with this thing, you know? And my, I remember when I first got married, Amanda had this stuffed animal that was like on the bed. And she was just like very clear. I just want to let you know, we're sharing the bed with the dog. I'm like, that little gross stuffed animal missing an eye and everything. She's like, yeah, mutt stays. I'm like, if, you know, if you need someone to kind of snuggle with, I'm right here. Yeah, it's great. Mutt stays. So now we just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. You still have Mutt. Mutt's just up in the closet. And every day I look at him and I just kind of, I just say I say some words to Mutt that aren't real popular in our house. But there is these, there, we, all of us at some point in our lives, I mean, every one of us pretty much raised our hands or we were ashamed to raise our hands. We thought of something we had in our lives that we've held on to 
Because it gives us some kind of security about the things, that everything's going to be okay. And it would be a great tragedy if anybody ever tried to make you go to sleep when you're a little kid without that thing. If you make my daughter go try to go to sleep without that blanket, the whole neighborhood wakes up. It is like a fire alarm. Just, wah! I mean, it's crazy, right? Because we go, these are the things that give to us what we want and what we need. And if we're really thinking about it, it's all these things that we have this kind of sense within us that says, at some point, we should give those things up. Some of you are like, I'm not giving mine up. I know you're still holding on to it. It's okay. But there's a belief among most of us that it's a pretty childish thing to hold on to things like this with a belief of this kind of ferocity that it can give us everything we need. And yet I think there's something within all of us that we all long for, think about, wonder about, we all hope for, and it's behind everything. It's the thing that we hold on to and protect. It's the definitive human concern. It's the thing that I would say it's what everybody wants. It's what the world tells you that you're entitled to have. It is, uh, it is something that ought to be protected, and anybody who would dare threaten it ought to be resisted with ferocity and energy and screaming and yelling or whatever else it is. It's behind our need for achievement. It's that thing that we, it's, it kind of is behind our need for getting new stuff. It's behind the relationships we chase and the successes we're after. It's after all of the indulgences that we give to ourselves. It's behind every single thing. It is, it's the unending pursuit of whatever, however we might frame this word, but it's the unending pursuit of happiness. It's to say that somehow or another, we get to write our story that protects and insulates us, that gives to us direction in our lives. And the truth is, however we define happiness, however, however we chase it or protect it, literally shapes our lives. It shapes our future. It shapes our present decisions. It is something that's impacting everything about our lives. And it is the blanket or the pillow or the mutt, whatever, uh, that you know, might be in our, in our lives that we go, I, I will not release this thing because it matters too much and it keeps me safe. And anybody who tries to threaten it, I yell at and I resist. A pursuit of happiness. Now, when we look at the Bible, most of us you know, if, if you're like me, you look at the Bible and you go, there are these people who have these heroic stories. I kind of mentioned this already before. And we go, these are people who I could never understand because the, their, their model, their, their, whatever it is that their faith looks like, is so incredibly over the top that I just go, well, it's neat to hear their story, but I could never really get to that. And we think the time was so different. It was such a different world. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago or more. These are people living in completely different situations, which is true. And yet they're also so incredibly human. And there is no better picture of people that are just like us, but in a different time. And yes, they have different cultures and customs and all kinds of stuff, different worldviews. But they're still looking for the same stuff. How do I become a person who has the greatest level of significance, happiness, fulfillment, or whatever you might want to call in my life? And whatever I've already been given, I just want to protect it. They're no different than us. Foremost among those people is Peter, sort of the leader of these disciples guys that follow Jesus, that walked with him. This is a guy who understands what it's like to have regular human concerns. Let me give you a quick primer on Peter. He's a guy who's listed first among the disciples. Oftentimes you have the disciples and Peter, or you have Peter and the disciples. The, even when angels appear and tell people to go tell Peter and the disciples, Jesus acknowledges him as kind of the spokesperson of the disciples. I mean, he's a guy who is a pillar in the early church. When the church starts after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and the church starts, it's like Peter and then James, Jesus' brother. Those are the two guys kind of getting stuff going, right? It's these guys. And then you have the, you know, he's kind of this guy who's got this outspoken zeal. He speaks out loud. He speaks his mind real fast. 
You know, when Jesus is confronted by soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the Gospels has Peter take out a sword and shut, like, slice his ear off. Like, shlink, you know. You know, you can imagine Jesus like, Peter, I got this, you know. And he heals the guy. I mean, there's just this kind of bizarre thing. But he's got kind of this zeal, this kind of super over-the-top loyalty zeal kind of thing going. He famously walks on water with Jesus. So we know that story. Jesus, the, all the disciples are out in a boat. It's storms come up, and they're freaking out. And then Jesus comes walking on the water, which they all go, well, that's not possible. It must be a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's me. And Peter goes, well, if it's you, tell me to walk out to you. And so nobody else said that, but Peter does. And so he gets out of the boat, and he takes a few steps in the water, and then, then he sinks. But at least he was out there. He tried it, you know. And he kind of has this story of being the guy who's like, I'll do it. I'm in. And, you know, let me try and do these things. And he's also a guy who notoriously abandons Jesus. When he's on trial, Peter, the guy who's kind of, I'm with you, Mom, this is us, that guy abandons Jesus like that. I mean, he's got all of this. He's a regular human guy. And he's got all of this story. And there's a lot we could say about Peter. It probably could take us about three or four weeks probably to cover really all of who Peter is and kind of the ins and outs. But I just want to take this one episode in Peter in the disciples' life, because I think it connects to this idea of us and our human concerns. So here's what it is in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Oh, sorry. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, we stop right there. Caesarea Philippi is a, um, it's presently a city called Banyas, B-A-N-Y-A-S. I think I wrote this on your outline, but this is a city um, known, you can see the root word B-A-N, which actually it's actually, a, a, you know, the, the older version of that word would be P-A-N, not B-A-N, which would be worship of the god Pan. So in this city, Caesarea Philippi, it's the ancient city where people would worship the god Pan. Pan's a half goat, half man. And um, the way in which Pan was worshipped was uh, essentially, I mean, I don't want to say this, it was essentially with like wild sex fests. So it's kind of like, Hey, everybody worshiping Pan, real popular among college-age folks at the time and, you know, Caesarea Philippi. But it was this crazy, wild worship stuff. Now, for Jesus, he's walking with his disciples. Scholars will tell us that the, the, the disciples are probably a lot younger than we probably have imagined before. Like, a lot of us have imagined, you know, Peter's like, like he's got a cane and the rest of the disciples are kind of like a little bit younger. But more than likely, they're probably about high school age. So this is one place, Caesarea Philippi is not a place where you take high school kids. Like imagine if, like our high school guys are going on a camp this weekend, this next week. And imagine if our high school pastor was like, hey parents, um, just that I take some of the high school students. We're going to go and just go to, go to Vegas and kind of hang out and see what happens. <laughs> see some sights and catch a show, you know, and just kind of walk around and kind of take it in. No, you won't. <laughs> You're not our high school pastor anymore. You know, like that would be, that would just, you know, this is what's happening. So Jesus is leading a group of potentially, you know, not much older than high school kids. Baby Peter's a little bit older. Maybe he's in his 20s. But you have this like, that's it. You don't, you don't go there because of its reputation. Verse, uh, second half of it. Then he says this. He asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, this is, a, this is a title, the, the title Son of Man. It's a title Jesus uses for himself throughout the gospel. At this point, though, he's referring to something kind of a little different. It's still the title, but there's this belief that there will be a time, this comes from Daniel chapter 7, there will be a time in which God rescues his people from the pagan nations. So they've been plagued with all kinds of, uh, you know, captivity and all kinds of stuff, and there'll be a moment when God sends someone to rescue his people from the pagan nations. That person gets the title, the son of man. 
And it's kind of a popular discussion among people. Like people who are expecting God to do this kind of rescue, they're always talking about it. Like, well, you know, I wonder who the Son of Man would be. And so Jesus says, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? And popular discussion, who's talking about it? Who, who, do, they, who do they think he's going to be? And so they list off some people. Here's what they, they say. Well, they replied, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Now, what, what you have to understand what's happening here is they're trying to figure out who's going to be our rescuer. Who's the son of man? Well, some say it was a guy, Jeremiah, who died, you know, he's a long time ago. And some say it's Elijah. Elijah has a story where he, you know, he's kind of serving God and then kind of passes the torch to his next in charge there, a guy named Elisha, which is kind of hard to explain. But then God just takes him away into the sky in a fiery chariot. So surely he's going to come back again. I mean, it's like this bizarre story. Surely he's going to come back again. So maybe they're like, well, the son of man will be Elisha. Some say it was John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had just died two chapters earlier. He got beheaded. So they're like, we don't know who the Son of Man is. We don't know who people are saying who the Son of Man is. We're not, I don't know one really knows. The one thing all these people have in common, though, is that they are revolutionaries. Now, they didn't look at the existing power structure and say, hey, guys, here to help. <laughs> I'm one of the prophets, and I'm just glad you guys are doing what you're doing. People seem kind of doing great, and I'm just here to help. No, what they always showed up and said is, you have to turn to a different way. Kings, priests, people, you guys are headed in the wrong direction, and God has given me this mouthpiece to tell you, you've got to turn around. Always, that's the message of the prophets. They're always revolutionary, and power structures never love them. Except people believe the Son of Man would come, and everybody would love him, because he'd bring about relief for all of God's people. Verse 15 continues. Jesus says to him, But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Now, this is probably the pivotal moment in all of Jesus' ministry. It's the most important question about Jesus that we could ever ask. If you, you know, we're kind of a group of people that invites a lot of people to church, kind of one of the things we kind of do around here. And maybe you're someone who was brought by someone who invited you. And it's the question you ask, too. I mean, who do people, who do people, but who do you say that I am? Jesus looks, the plural you, looks at his disciples and he goes, who do you say that I am? It's a question some of you probably have answered at one point. Maybe you, like our high school students, went away to a camp at some point and thought, you know, I, I, I made a decision about who Jesus is, but maybe it's something we still have to wrestle with every single day. Who do I say that he is? For some of us, we have an impression about who God is, about who Jesus is, about who the Son of Man is. Some of us, we have this impression about Jesus. If I was to ask you, you would say, well, he, he's, you know, he's mostly kind of like a, like a mall security guard. Like he kind of sees me and goes, hey, guys, stop running. Can't eat in here. Hey, no skateboards here. Take those outside. Hey, guys, don't make me call your parents. You know, like you know, up on their little, you know, scooter thing or whatever. What's those things called? Segway, run up to you and stop in and, you know, busting you for stuff. I mean, it's kind of have a mall cop impression of Jesus. Others of us have an impression about Jesus that he's kind of like Superman, that he's way far away living in the fortress of solitude, you know, that ice castle he lives in. And then, you know, we're in trouble. Jesus! And then, ba 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 problem is gone and then Jesus keeps on going hey how's Jesus he just came in he was flying in bye Jesus thank you like some of us have that impression about Jesus kind of Superman flies in he's not really around but when we need him he shows up or he's supposed to at least some of us have impressions about Jesus that he's kind of given us this model to follow which is just insane like well I'll never get there but I'll just keep trying some of us have an impression about Jesus that he's kind of generally a disapproving teacher he looks at us going no it's just not the way you're supposed to no 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 try again no no just that's all we hear this is our impression of Jesus and we go well 
Who do we say that he is? I mean, if we ask ourselves, who do I say that he really is? And it's something probably, like I said, that we have to refresh every day. Because we live in an image of who God is, and we live out that image in our lives going, well, this is who we think he is, so I'm going to try and react to that way. And if I don't get it kind of, my lens isn't right about who God is, then I've kind of messed some stuff up. So Jesus is saying, who do you, to the disciples, say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is what, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So Peter answers, Simon Peter, this time, this point, his name's just Simon Peter. He answers back, well, you know, it's, you're the Messiah. You're the son, you're the guy who's supposed to do this. You're the one everyone's been waiting for. And then Jesus says this line, which is basically like saying, that's the right answer, but it's a really kind of the only the way Jesus could kind of say it. This answer was not given to you by flesh and blood, you know, flesh and blood, but that was given to you by my Father in heaven, meaning you got a spiritual answer that came right from heaven and you answered correctly. Good job, gold star. And Peter's like, all right, cool. Other younger disciples in your face. <laughs> I'm older and wiser and, you know, more handsome than you guys. So no big deal, right? So then he kind of has this deal going there. So then Jesus responds back to him and he says, and I tell you, that you are Peter. Now, there's, I wrote the rest of this sort of dialogue on your outlines. It actually will require too much to talk about, but you just get, he goes, he gets a name change. New nickname. Simon, which basically means one who hears. And now he gets another name, which is Peter. In Greek, it would be Petros, which is ro- like rock. Rocky. Now he's Rocky. He was the one who hears, and now he's Rocky. You know, the name, you see it a couple different times in the Bible. It shows up in, um, there's the word like Cephas or, you know, Kephas, however you want to say it. So you, I wrote that on your outline as well. But you have, this is how, this is Peter's new name. It means Rocky. So he was Simon or Simon Peter. And now he's Peter. His answer was so good. Jesus goes, you got a nickname, buddy. Rocky, Mr. Solid, Mr. I'm with you till the bitter end. We're going to build some stuff together. Everything's awesome. You're Rocky. Now, one of the things you find reading the gospels, we read the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. I find that the disciples are always kind of looking at each other like, kind of who's number one? They keep bugging Jesus like, hey, you know, when... Like, you kind of get your crown of glory, whatever that is, you know, uh, can I be on your right and left? At some point, you even have people's, like, moms coming and saying, uh, can my sons be on your right and left? And Jesus is like, hey, everybody, lighten up. But, you know, it's always a constant, like, battle. Now, Peter now has a nickname. He's foremost among the disciples. And you can imagine he's like, sorry, guys, Rocky's here. <laughs> you guys got any questions? I probably can answer them. Um, so I'm happy to help you however you need. But don't get in my face. I'm now Rocky. And you can just imagine a little bit of ego, a little bit of confidence. Everything he's been hoping for in his life as these guys have given up everything to follow Jesus, to walk with him, to be shaped, to be like him. Jesus affirms what Peter's now recognized. And he gives him a name and his ego's high, his confidence is high. This is a good day. Happiness seems to be right there. Everything that he's ever been looking for is being answered in that moment about significance and about meaning and purpose and all that stuff. And then Jesus began to explain something. Let's get me down to verse 21. From that time on, meaning this is an ongoing conversation, (laughs) Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're kind of like, yeah, 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 Jesus goes and he dies on the cross and we have Easter and kind of know that stuff. But for all the people that were waiting for this person called the Son of Man to show up and rescue Israel from its pagan enemies, that's not how the story's supposed to go. You see, he's supposed to come in, 
everybody, the angels and everybody else is supposed to get real serious about militarily overthrowing Romans. Hey, stab a Roman. Let's get after people. Let's do some killing in the name of Jesus. You know, like, that's kind of what it's supposed to look like. And he says, no, no, no. Son of man, the Messiah, me, I'm going to go and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be really attacked by all the people that have any kind of religious authority. And then uh, they're going to kill me. And then I'm going to do this thing you've never heard of before, which is, you know, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, Peter and the disciples are looking at Jesus like, that's not, that's not how the story's supposed to go, man. Because in the time of about 50 BC to the time 50 AD, there's about a dozen guys who show up and say, I'm the son of man. I'm the Lord's Messiah. Follow me. We'll conquer Rome. The Lord is with me. Let's do this. And every time Rome goes, oh gosh, here comes another guy thinking he's the Messiah. And here's how they handle it. This guy's got a little following, maybe a couple hundred people. What they do is they capture the leader, publicly execute him, generally on a cross. And then all of the following people that are following him kind of disperse. And the movement's over. So what they know about how Messiahs fall is that they find a guy and he's, die, he's killed. He dies on a cross publicly. And what Jesus is tell, now telling them is, this is my mission. I'm going to march into Jerusalem and die. And they go, what? So then here's what happens. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now, (laughs) you just declared Jesus is the guy who's going to rescue the whole world from the powers of evil, whatever it is you just said. And now, because you've got a nickname, Rocky, you think you can rebuke him? Hey, Jesus, Rocky here. Just want to let you know. Uh, <laughs> you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. That's not the way it's going to go down. Let me tell you a better story about how this is going to go down. Because I know how it's supposed to happen, and this is, you're not supposed to, so no, you're being rebuked by now. Rebuked. And we think in our head, just for a little moment, you go, how big of a guy do you have to be to rebuke Jesus? Like, oh, you know, I kind of got this figured out. You might be the Lord, but I'm Rocky. So I'm just going to talk to you about how it's supposed to be. And we start thinking about who would ever do this and to try to correct Jesus. Whatever, what person would ever do this? And then you get Jesus' response. This is, this is unbelievable. So then, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, that some translations have the word rebuked Peter. Listen to this nickname. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And then he keeps on going. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter, got, was at one point, just a little bit ago, he's Simon, one who hears. Not that well, evidently. And then, number, then he gets another nickname, which is Rocky. I'm Rocky. No, get behind me, Satan. You know, can we have... That doesn't have quite the same ring as Rocky. If we could try another name, perhaps, that would maybe even something a little less, like maybe I'd just be Terry or something just a little different, a little, you know, snappier, you know, whatever. But Satan, that seems pretty sinister. Peter says to Jesus, you can't, this isn't, this isn't what we're supposed to do. You don't do that. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, your mind's on the stuff that concerns human beings. And he says, You can't get in the way of what's really going to happen here. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is one who tests loyalties. It's Satan who tests Jesus' loyalty as he's in the desert in in, um, Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 where he's like, 
What kind of loyalty do you have to your God? It is Satan who tests loyalties, and Jesus says to Peter, I can't have you testing my loyalty to the God who has sent me here. Get behind me if you're going to test my loyalty. Who would ever stand up to Jesus and rebuke him or try to correct him? I think we get this, in, we kind of get this picture here in this moment. Well, I'll tell you what, last night I was at my high school reunion. Can I just tell you what a trip it is to tell people from 20 years ago that you're a pastor? So what do you do? I'm in marketing finance, I'm in, you know, whatever, and then they kind of, what do you do? Uh, I'm a pastor, and they just look at you like, that's insane. What do you really do? And they try to figure, they can't figure it out. They're like, so how do you, uh, one of my buddies, one of my best friends in high school is like, so how do you? Do you like, how do you, I don't know what you say, how do you say, do you conduct services? You do it? I go, yes, they call me Conductor Jeff at my church. <laughs> I have this baton right here I'd like to give to you, and I just conduct. You know, like, I'm like, and these are all people who kind of have some relationship or understanding about Jesus. We went to a Catholic high school, and my, one of my buddies goes, run into him, and he's, um, he lives in Newport Beach, and he's like, um, he was my roommate in college. Great dude, such a great guy. And he goes, hey, I, I sent my daughter to that, uh, that uh, VBS Bible camp thing you guys do. And I go, oh, really? She go, he goes, oh, she loved it. She loved it. And I go, well, cool. And he goes, but I, I got to tell you, dude, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I go, what do you mean? She goes, he goes, well, she's been coming home every day going, dad, you got to read your Bible. <laughs> and this is literally what he says, McGuire, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I said, well, as the conductor, I would like you to not ever use the word hell again in my presence. <laughs> I said... <laughs> I said, so why, why don't you read your Bible? You know, and he's like, oh, whatever. You know, it's like there's kind of this, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with Jesus. And I, what I think is, as we look at this kind of story, we think about these guys in a little bit, we, we kind of have this sense that we would never rebuke Jesus because who would ever do that? But here's the truth. Most of us, we like Jesus so long as he's kind of my Jesus. I mean, yes, Jesus is very personal. Let's not get away from that. I want to make sure that's very clear. But we kind of like him to kind of be on board with what we got going on. And we're really uncomfortable with the Jesus, the one who might get up in our business and kind of go, I don't know if you really want, that's not really going to give you the life you think it is. You know, we don't really want that Jesus. We kind of keep him at arm's length because he interferes with our human concerns. Every one of us. I was... Um, Yesterday, I was, at, um, I was at the hospital. I was, um, a friend of ours uh, had a baby, and that pregnancy didn't go great. The, the birth didn't go great. So they're like, yeah, we're in, the, we're in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. Can you come visit us? Yeah, of course. So I'm in this room, and I'm standing with a couple, and there's probably, I don't know, seven or eight or ten other little tiny plastic incubator tubes where these other babies are in. And I'm standing over theirs, and they say, would you pray with us? And I put my hands on their backs, and they put their hands on top of this plastic incubator. And I start praying. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm praying, and I'm saying out loud, and I'm imagining... I could feel the, the mom who's on my right, I could feel, she's a brand new mom. I could feel her shaking, and the tears, and the crying. 
and our hands are on this plastic thing because this is as close as we can get to this baby. And I'm thinking, this is not the story they wanted either. And for a lot of us, as we look at Jesus, we go, you know, there's a lot of things that you permit to happen that you seem to prevent in other people's lives. And there's things that you're, that you're supposed to do that you don't do, and I don't get it. I don't understand. And to, look at, to be with this couple yesterday as we're praying, and to imagine this is a young mom <clears throat> who wanted to have all of these, all the family and all these people come in, and she would be, you know, having her mom hold the baby and having her dad hold the baby and then immediately taking the baby back from the dad who doesn't know what he's doing and handing it to other, all of these, but all these people are supposed to be around the Instagram pictures and all the stuff and all the updates and everything else, and she doesn't get that story. She gets a different story. It's three people huddled around a plastic tube with their hands on the plastic tube praying for healing. We have, good, we have good human concerns, you guys. They're legitimate ones because we don't understand everything Jesus is doing and things that he's allowing to happen and other things he's preventing. Some of them are as serious as a baby in a neonatal intensive care unit. Other them are problems or issues in our lives. Other things we're defending in our own lives that we really want. We're not sure how to handle it. We know we need Jesus, but we don't know how close we want him to get because he doesn't always make sense to us. And so we keep him at arm's length and we have this constant battle. Is it my Jesus or is it the Jesus? Because the Jesus looks at us and goes, there's some stuff in your life that probably ought to be dealt with that you aren't going to want to deal with. And generally what we all do is we go, yeah, 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 tell me about the other stuff that's going on, but I, don't, I still have some things I want to hold on to. I can't let them go. This is my right to defend these things. A friend in my life who's this person's kind of running a little wild. I'm talking to this person, and they just go, I know, I know, I, I know I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I want to do it. And I know it will take me nowhere, but I want to do it right now. And then when I'm all done, I'll know and I'll I'll deal with whatever consequences there are. My Jesus. Or the Jesus who says there are things that we got to deal with in your life. Who do you say that I am? Is it my Jesus or is it the Jesus, the rescuer of the world? Then Jesus kind of ups the ante. He talks about what it means to follow him. And says this in Matthew 16, 24 to 26. The parallel passage in Mark 8 has Jesus speaking to a crowd. Remember all these people who are there worshiping Pan. Speaking to a crowd and to the disciples. So he gathers these people and he says these words. Jesus then says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So he's speaking to these people, some of them the crowd, who have... Their lives 100% governed by their human concerns. And he speaks to his disciples. Disciples are people who are not merely learners or students. That often gets translated that way. A disciple is someone who wants their own life to be like the life of the master that they follow. So these people are looking at Jesus going, we want our lives to look like you. We want people to look at us and go, you look like you've been with Jesus. That's what we want it to be. And Jesus describes the kind of life he's called them to. He's told them, I'm going to go down this road and I'm going to suffer and die. And then he tells them, 
you're going to have to make some pretty tough choices about letting go of some things if you want to follow me. Which means the dominant human concern of their lives, the definitive one about preserving and holding on to, it's going to be a little different. Because Jesus just keeps talking about this thing over and over again. The book of Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. In the other gospels, he calls it either the kingdom of God or he calls it eternal life. But he's talking about this kind of thing that God is at work doing. And the kind of stuff he's doing is so out there and it requires us to go, all right, if it's, it's like such crazy stuff because who would ever do this kind of thing? What insane per- I mean, he's saying you're going to lose everything you might know. You're going to have to do things like forgiveness when forgiveness might be the most insane thing anybody could do because someone else deserves revenge. It might be some kind of radical generosity when the rest of the world says hold on to stuff. It might be some kind of compassionate love that has no other understanding except that, I mean, what crazy person would do these kinds? This is all part of God's kingdom project in the world. Well, what kind of insane person would go along with this? What kind of person goes, this makes sense? You're asking me to give up everything? The only person for whom this makes sense, this kind of life makes sense, is someone for whom... All of the promises about pursuing happiness and wholeness that the world had given to them had left them empty. And more often than not, in my experience, people have to go pretty far down the road to figure out, this is not getting me where I thought it would get me. These promises are empty. These lies are coming now to be exposed. I'm looking for something else. My soul is longing for something else. And Jesus says, what do you gain if you get the whole world and you give up your whole soul? So he calls these people to this radical kind of life in which he says something to the effect of who cares if you get everything, but at the end of the day, it has done nothing to give you the life you were hoping to have. There's a famous quote by a guy named Augustine. If you're really cool, you call him Augustine, but I'm not that cool. But he says it this way. He says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Meaning he's talking to God saying, our hearts are restless. Literally, I think it's actually more closely. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Meaning we are on a perpetual human concern-oriented kind of search for some kind of meaning and purpose in our lives. And until we figure out that it is only God who gives us those things, we kind of keep on wandering. Imagine now Peter's in front of the disciples. He's been called. He went from Simon to Peter, Simon to Rocky, and then now he's been called Satan. And he's, Jesus has kind of turned from Peter to the rest of the disciples and now addressing these things. He's kind of had this up and down kind of day, if you can imagine. Jesus is telling these guys all these things. And Peter's a guy, the rest of his story, I don't have time to tell you, but he's a guy who, like I said, he notoriously denies Jesus during his trial. And three times. It's in John chapter 21 that Jesus restores him back to ministry and to life. And in that, in that chapter, he doesn't refer to him as Peter, refers to him as Simon until he kind of gets it. No, no, you're Rocky. You're with me. And there's this guy with all of these concerns and all this wanting to hold on to everything that he knows, his own story. But now that story's changed because Jesus is not saying you just get to have honor. You get to, have, you get to join me. And it's hard. And Peter kind of finally figures it out. He's answered the question, who do you say that I am? And he says it in this way in Acts chapter 4. You can read about Peter in Acts chapter 4. It's amazing. Just really quickly, here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It says this, when they saw the courage, these are people who just busted Peter and John for healing a guy. They saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. 
They were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus, meaning their own lives had been so impacted by Jesus that they gave off this kind of, you look like your people have been with Jesus. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Peter, through a lot of effort and a lot of pain, kind of figures out, I want my life to be reflected in this person of Jesus. It's not just my Jesus. It is the Jesus. For you, in your life. Where is it that Jesus kind of just gets to be my Jesus? Kind of doesn't get to mess with stuff that he's kept at arm's length? That maybe there's a part of your life that says, well, I, I, I know there's some things, but this is the 21st century and we don't do things like they did and so you don't get to speak into it. Because what he wants for all of us is to acknowledge that the fullest possible, most beautiful kind of life is one in which we go, you're the Jesus. I give up everything to follow you. My Jesus or the Jesus. Let's pray together. Just with your eyes closed for a moment. What is in your life that you are keeping Jesus at a distance? Maybe it's a pain that you just don't even, it's not, a, it's not a habit or a practice, but it's a pain or a difficulty or a struggle in your life that you go, I don't, I don't like the way this is being handled. And it seems unfair that maybe God handles it a different way. Is it that? You go, I don't get it. I need you to be a little bit more on my schedule and in my way of doing things. Where is it in your life that maybe you have this encounter with Jesus that is one in which you say, you can have some things, but some of these things I get to hold on to because if I let them go, everything else will fall apart. Because you're going to say stuff to me. You're going to do whatever it is that you do. I don't understand how you do it, but you're going to mess with me, and I don't want that. Lord, we're a group of people who have human concerns, every one of us. Our lives are governed by the fact, God, that we, we want and seek the happiness that the world provides, and yet we're also warring against it because we know it leaves us empty. Jesus, we need you, only you, no matter what everything in our own hearts might tell us, we choose you. You are the Lord. You are the one. You are, as the scripture says, you are the Lord's Messiah. We need your rescue in our lives. For some of us in the room, we'll need to come forward. You'll need to stand up and go, I'm, man, I need to walk forward and be prayed for. There are things in my life that I'm keeping Jesus at a distance. Some of us need to write some things down and place them in the prayer wall. For some of us, it might take great courage just simply to stand up as we sing. Some of you are, you know, you'll stand up no matter what, but some of us, maybe we've never stood up to sing and to respond as we set our own prayers, our collective prayers to music and sing them back to God. But this is a time to respond to Jesus who says, who do you say that I am? Is it my Jesus or the Jesus? So Father, would you hear our prayers as we set them to music, as we sing, as we respond to you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.